have a Bible, open up to the book of Revelation. Continue our study of Revelation here in picking up in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. We, we all know that struggle is the key to success, right? Victories that are hard won are, are usually deeply loved. How many of us have not had a, a coach or a mentor in our life kind of yell or say to us things like, uh, no pain, no gain, all right? What, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. A kite rises against the wind, not with it. What other cliches are there? Uh, oh, a diamond is formed from the pressure, right? Olives give their oil when they're crushed, and grapes only give juice when you press them, right? It goes on and on and on. There's all, all kinds out there, but it, it actually is true, right? Historically, the, the greatest American generation endured the most difficulty, uh, even the ancient church father Tertullian said, it's, it's the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church's growth. Struggle, opposition, pain, difficulty, the things we, we kind of tend to avoid in our lives and in our culture, upon reflection, turn out to be the key ingredients to victory, to growth, to maturity, to wisdom. This isn't something you don't know. I mean, this is something that's common knowledge, but here's the question I have. If we all know that difficulty is actually good for us, why is it we try so hard to avoid it? Right? That, that, that actually was a rhetorical question. I got to say that because in this church, I do get some good answers back, right? But why do we avoid it? Well, it's because we kind of do a, a crass cost-benefit analysis, right? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is the victory worth the struggle? Is the growth worth the pain? Is the joy of lifelong companionship worth the pain of self-denial? If so, you might be ready for marriage, right? That's how that works. Is the joy of health worth the pain of exercise and dieting? If it is, you might be ready for the gym. We're always asking the question, is it worth it? So here's the question I want you to think about this morning. What is never-ending joy? The eternal presence and pleasure of God worth? To frame it a different way from our passage this morning, what is Jesus worth? See, that's the question that's put before us as we look at Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. And the way we're going to get at that answer is three simple things. Um, The city of Smyrna, we're going to look at the city of Smyrna. We're going to look at the struggle in Smyrna. And then finally, we'll look at the Savior and Smyrna. If you have a Bible and you're open to Revelation chapter 2, let me read to you. Actually, we haven't done this in a while. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, something we, we, we do here frequently. We're going to read the, what turns out to be the shortest letter to the seven letters to the seven churches. Revelation chapter 2, picking up verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers 
will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as we think about the city of Smyrna, it's not as well known as the city of Ephesus. Although Smyrna was the rival of Ephesus, it was about located, located about 35 miles north of, of the city of Ephesus. Smyrna was a beautiful harbor city, in, in many ways a lot, a lot like Ephesus. Smyrna is the only one of the seven cities, the seven churches in the seven cities we're looking at in Revelation 2 and 3, that is actually still inhabited to this day. Smyrna has consistently been inhabited for nearly two millennium and only recently changed its name back in 1930 to the city of Izmir. So if you've heard of Izmir, you've, that's actually the city of Smyrna that we're looking at this morning. Reportedly, let me show you some pictures of the city. Um, so I, I, I put a map here with an overlay of the modern nations around it, so you just kind of orient yourself. Obviously, you can see that there's Turkey, and right to the left of that, there's Greece. Over here, we got Italy, and then you got some of the Eastern European countries up here, Bulgaria, and then Syria over here. So you might see these little red things. That's the seven churches that these letters are. So here's the same map. I've just kind of taken away the modern nation distinctions there. Let me kind of zoom in a little bit. So here are the seven churches that all that we're looking at, Revelation 2 through 3, and here's Patmos. This is the island that John was exiled to, and he is writing to, there's Ephesus, and then there's Smyrna. We'll zoom in a little bit more so you can kind of see what's going on. Smyrna boasted one of the, the largest theaters in Asia Minor, so you can imagine that that brought with that the culture and the arts. Smyrna boasts to be the birthplace of the famous Greek poet, Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, if you remember that from your high school or college days. As a favored Roman province, Smyrna was a diverse, influential city. As a harbor city, many people groups from all over the Mediterranean would live in Smyrna, including a very large Jewish population. Smyrna was a cultural epicenter and a, a bustling hub of trade. Imagine a... a a kind of, of San Francisco of the ancient times, and you have a good idea of the kind of city that Smyrna was. Smyrna was a beautiful city. Let me show you this picture. It's an artist rendition of what we think the city actually looked like at, at its hub, right about what we're looking at here in Revelation 2. So you can see it's a typical Roman province, beautiful harbor, wonderful. You can see the artist rendition of probably the theater. I'm not sure that's the one that was world famous, but it's a beautiful city. Uh, and the Acropolis, an Acropolis is a, imagine like a city hall, except back in those days you had the, it was a, a, a religious, a civic, and a business center. All those things were often combined in, in antiquity. And it, it was around the, the crown, they called the crown of Smyrna. It was a semicircle under the, the main mountain, and it was so beautiful, it's called the crown of Smyrna. So it was a, a wonderful city. You can imagine it was, you know, uh, you know, Oceanfront property there, temperate climate, beautiful hills to hike in, quality of life. This would be a city you'd want to live in in ancient times. Now, you might be thinking if you paid attention to the reading, wait a minute here. We just got through reading about tribulation, poverty, slander, imprisonment, death. That doesn't really sound like quality of life, you know, wonderful place to live, raise a family kind of place. That's true. I can see the disparity there. Living in Smyrna came at a cost. It was a wonderful, I guess we could say a little piece of worldly heaven here on earth, if you were willing to pay the price. That price would be giving allegiance and worship to Caesar, because it was a Roman province, 
buying into the polytheistic culture that surrounded you and denying your Christian faith, or at least hiding it and not letting it transform your life. If you're willing to pay that price, this is a wonderful place to be. But this little church, this wonderful little congregation in Smyrna was not willing to pay that price. They were willing to pay a different price. You see, what Jesus was worth and what He promised was much more valuable than what Smyrna was worth to them. And so they did pay the price, and that price was, for them, tribulation. It was poverty, it was slander, and for a few, even death. Obviously, Smyrna has changed over the years. Now, this is modern Izmir. It's not from the, it looks like the same vantage point in some sense, doesn't it? But, it? but it's not. You can see it's a sprawling city in the Mediterranean, and yet there are still many ruins from ancient Smyrna. If you were to go there into Izmir, you would see all these pillars and colonnades everywhere. And here's kind of part of the Acropolis. That would have been the, the business entrance there, and that's one of the hallways. So Smyrna was a very cultural and, and, and well-known city, beautiful city to be in. But for the Christians there, it was very, very difficult. And so they had a struggle, verses 9 and 10. Unlike the church at Ephesus, it was probably very comforting for these Christians in Smyrna to hear Jesus say those two words, I know, right? I know your deeds, he wrote to the Ephesian church. I know your works, he would write to other churches. But notice he doesn't say that to the, the church at Smyrna. He says, I know your tribulation. It's very unlike what he says to the other churches. I know your suffering. I know the struggle that you are enduring. You see, this church was such a contrast to the Ephesian church the Ephesian church, a very powerful and well-known church. After all, they probably had the only what we would call celebrity pastors, right? They had Paul, they had Timothy, even John the Apostle was there for a while, right? And of all the churches that we're looking at, they're the only ones that made it into the Bible, right? Nobody ever heard of the book of Smyrna, right? But you do have a book of Ephesus. And yet, they received a stern rebuke, didn't they? Remember from last week, Jesus basically saying, don't make me come down there, Ephesus, and, and don't make me come down and take away your lampstand. And yet, Smyrna, by contrast, this little church doesn't have the celebrity or the influence or the power of the Ephesian church. It's only one of two churches that doesn't get any rebuke from the Lord. As a matter of fact, Smyrna and Philadelphia only receive encouragement from Christ. The other five receive a rebuke of some sort. It seems then just by that that the Lord is more concerned that His church be faithful than powerful. Friend, I hope you consider that if you are looking for a church. I often ask people what it is they're looking for in a church, and a lot of times I'm a little discouraged. Let me encourage you, if you are looking for a church, do not be impressed by big, fancy buildings. Don't let the, the great-sounding, tight musicians wow you. Don't let the savvy, smooth talks fool you, right? That doesn't necessarily make a great church. Some of God's most powerful witnesses have been dumpy, sloppy, awkward people in places. That's just the reality, right? Why is that? Well, it's because God and God alone receives the glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, verse 26, "'For consider your calling, brothers.'" 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why does God do this? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that this, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Friends, I hope that brings you comfort. Not because I think any of you are particularly, oh, sorry, I didn't fast forward that, but not because I think any of you are particularly awkward or not powerful or, or, you know, I just think that the point that we're making here is that God doesn't look for the powerful. God doesn't look for the influential. God looks for the faithful, and we see that here in this church of Smyrna. How comforting to know that Jesus knew their tribulations well. We see that in verse 9 and 10. Now, tribulation is the general word of their hardships, but Jesus goes on specifically to talk about the kind of tribulations they're experiencing. Did you notice that when He says, I know of your tribulation, and He specifically mentions it, the poverty they're experiencing, although they are rich, we'll unpack that in a little bit, and the slander they were receiving by those who said that they were Jews. Let's look at those each one at a time. In a harbor city like Smyrna, most of the wealth came from trade. That's pretty obvious, pretty easy to realize. And back then, the trades were controlled mostly by trade guilds. Think of kind of a, an ancient version of a union of some sort. And trade guilds oftenly had patron deities. So, example, if you were a sea merchant, your patron god would be Poseidon. And so you were regularly offer sacrifices and make prayers to Poseidon to make sure that you had favorable sea conditions, that the tides were right, that the weather would be okay, to ensure that your freight would make it to harbor. And furthermore, you would do business with other people who did the same kind of homage to Poseidon to ensure the greatest possible chance that your business would succeed. Well, looked at it from that point of view... Just practically speaking, why would you do business with a Christian who not only did not offer sacrifices or make prayers to Poseidon, but didn't even believe in the existence of Poseidon? Just from a practical level, it wasn't a smart thing to do if you were a sea merchant. If you were a farmer and you prayed to the gods for your crops, you wouldn't be working with a Christian who didn't pray to the same gods that you did because they didn't even believe in them. So just for no other reason than practical measures, the Christians in Smyrna were being slowly inched out of the business life of their community. Their faith in Christ, their refusal to acknowledge the other deities that, that all these guilds acknowledged and prayed to was slowly inching them out and closer and closer to economic depravity. Disparity was the word I was meaning to say, economic disparity. Now, it may not have been overt persecution from the city to the Christians, but because these Christians didn't partake in the pagan worldview of the time, for that reason alone, they just couldn't participate in some of the business practices. Being a faithful Christian in Smyrna might have meant economic disadvantage because you just weren't going to pray to Poseidon. You just weren't going to look to those gods for your help because you believed that there was only one God. 
in Japan, a, a nation that we're trying to help reach, there's a phenomenon called the salary man. It includes women as well. Basically, it means after working 12 to 13 hours at the office, which was mandatory work there, you then spent another two to three hours at the basically drinking with your boss and your coworkers. And unless you did that, you were seen as disloyal and not a hardworking member of the company. And so you would be passed over for promotions. You would not get that raise. And so to be a Christian in that environment meant economic disadvantage because you would go home to be with your family. You would serve at your church and not be working, you know, 13, 14 hours a day and then going to bars drinking for another two to three hours. Maybe if you're a businessman or woman here, you can relate with some kind of similar practice. Maybe you can understand some of the persecution that the Smyrna Christians had to endure. Sometimes following Christ means we're just going to lose out on some things. Sometimes following Christ means you're just not going to accept certain practices. Sometimes following Christ means you will not compromise certain values that you believe are important. And so you have to ask yourself the question, is Jesus worth it? Now, before you answer that, look at verse 9. We have God's view of economy. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Friends, if you're a note taker, write down Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 31. It's a great cross-reference because in that, that, that encounter, Mark records a conversation between Jesus and a very wealthy young man who comes to Jesus and says, look, I have done everything the law has told me to do from my childhood, and I want to know what I can do to inherit eternal life. And, and I love, I'm not sure if it's Mark, I think it's Luke. Luke records of that encounter that Jesus saw him and loved him. And then Mark, in Mark's account, Jesus says, you're doing great, but there's one thing you lack. Sell all, get rid of all your riches, and then come follow me. Now, to be clear, it's not that Jesus had a problem with this man having riches, but Jesus knew that the riches had this man, and that's not going to work out. So Jesus said, you need to get rid of all your riches, because you don't know this, but and I do, but your riches have you. And this man would not let go of his riches to grab hold of the kingdom. And Mark's gospel says, he walked away, courage, sad. His hands full of riches, but Jesus spoke of his poverty. See, God's economy is very different, my friends. If you are a Christian, you must learn to measure wealth differently. That won't make you dollars, but it will make sense. Yeah, some of you got that. <laughs> friends, <laughs> learn to value things the way the Christians of Smyrna would understand the true worth of things. And maybe it's because they recognize that Jesus left his riches and embraced poverty so that they might have the very riches spoken of in verse 9. This is exactly what Paul wrote to the Corinthian churches. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he was speaking of being in the presence of God, the blessings he had at God's right hand, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? Why? so that you by his poverty might become rich. Friends, 
But it wasn't simply what we might call a passive persecution that the Smyrna Christians were enduring. Although that was true, there was an active persecution going on in the church as well. We see that, don't we, in verse, at the end of verse 9 and verse 10. And the slander of those, so let's back it up to verse 9, Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know you are not going to compromise what's important to pursue worldly wealth. You are making the right choices, and you are rich for that. That's not in your text, by the way. I'm unpacking that. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Now, I want to unpack this for you. The fact that we read in verse 10 that they will be facing imprisonment, and the fact that that follows immediately after what Jesus is saying, that they're being slandered by those who are Jews and are, in fact, are not, gives us a little bit of a hint of what's going on. Let me unpack that for you a little bit because I know some of you are reading that saying, Jews that are not Jews in the synagogue of Satan, what's all that? Going back to my opening message, that's part of the kind of crazy stuff that I'm not going to make a big deal about because it's actually not the point of what Jesus is saying, but I do want to let you know what it's getting at. When he says that you're being slandered by these Jews who are not, he may be referring to uh, Gentile God-fearers, people who weren't Jews, who became Christians, and because of the recognition of uh, what's going on in their culture, that their business practices were shrinking, they were going into poverty, and the increasing persecution of Rome, I'm going to explain that in a little bit, they said, oh, wait, 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 I don't want to buy into this Christianity thing, Judaism's pretty close, I'm a Jew now, and they were turning on their Christians. You will understand why soon. So that may be why they're saying Jews but are not Jews. That's a possibility. I don't think that's the case. I think what Jesus is saying, and it's significant that Jesus is saying this, he's, he's actually recognizing what actually is a Jew. And this might be shocking. And first, let's be very clear on this. In the book of Revelation, you're going to hear the reference to the Jews or the Jewish people or Israel, and it's oftentimes not what you think. Let me help you understand something called, that's a fancy word called hermeneutics. It's basically the science of interpretation. It's, it's something we all do, not just Christians. Like, you do this in law all the time. The word Israel, you realize it can mean up to five different things, right? Israel can refer to a political entity, as in the nation of Israel. Israel can refer to a geographical plot of dirt, as in the land of Israel. Israel can refer to a people Israel can refer to an individual named Israel. It was Jacob who was renamed Israel. And Israel, kind of a subsection of the third one, can refer generally just to the people of God. It can mean five different things in the New Testament. It actually can mean the same, almost the same in the Old Testament. The challenge is it's not going to tell you which meaning it's talking about. You have to figure it out from the context. Does that make sense? And by the way, we have words like this in our society as well. So, Israel can mean many different things in the Bible. You have to wonder, what Israel is he referring to? The, the political entity? The nation? The actual land you're walking on? The person that was named Israel? The people of God or the ethnic Jews? In the same way we have with the Jews, you can see this oftentimes in Revelation. What's interesting, I believe here, is Jesus is making it very clear that the Jews are not an ethnic national group, that the Jews are the people of God's covenant promise, that the Jews are those who by faith understand what the gospel is in a sense. And by the way, this isn't just me. Last week, I had a wonderful young man after one of our services when I said something about how Jesus and the church 
took the mantle and became the true Israel to be the lampstand of the world. This young man had some great questions about, what do you mean that they're now the true Israel? And, and, and part of my response, it wasn't as articulate then, I wish I could talk to him again this week, was these, that's not just my comment, Jesus actually says that, Paul actually says that. If you're a note taker, we won't unpack that today, but it's important for you. You write down Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Paul makes it very clear what a Jew is and what a Jew isn't, uh, especially verse 29, and then again in chapter 6, verse 15 of Galatians. Uh, in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, Paul makes the same case. He says a Jew is not one ethnically, but a Jew is one that has been circumcised in their heart. He says the same thing in Romans chapter 4, verse 11 through 13, so write that down as well. And, and kind of the, the 600-pound gorilla is Jesus himself said that in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 47. He talks about what is the child of Abraham, and it's not ethnicity. It is those who by faith believe the promises of God. He says those are the children of Abraham. And so what's going on here is Jesus is saying, look, they are Jews, but they are not because the Jew are the people of God, those who by faith trust in my promises, and they are opposing my work. So much so that he uses that phrase, synagogue of, in the Hebrew, Satan. Satan just basically means the adversary, the accuser, the one in opposition. And so because these Jews, who might have very well been ethnic Jews, were standing against those who by faith accepted the covenant of God, he says, they're not Jews. As a matter of fact, they're of a synagogue of opposition. Wow. That, that's a pretty heavy thing to say. So let me unpack what's happening here. What, what does he mean by the slander? You see, in, 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 in early on, Christianity was believed to be a subset of Judaism. And because they believed there was a subset of Judaism, the Roman Empire offered it the same kind of privileges and protections. Most important to them was they were exempt from having to worship Caesar. You can imagine, they had some history with the Jews. They said, forget about this. Let's just let's let us stop making this a requirement because this leads to a lot of bloodshed. If you're Jews, you don't have to worship Caesar. And because Christianity was thought to be a subset of Judaism, they got the pass as well. And it's understandable why. Up until A.D. 70, the majority of people within Christianity were of Jewish descent. Yeah, they were Gentiles, people like us, right? Most of us are Gentiles here. I think there's a couple of people of Jewish descent in our congregation. But most of us, most of the church, I mean, Gentiles were coming to Christ like crazy, but the majority of the church were made up of ethnic Jews. Up until about uh, AD 70, so for the first 40 years of the Christian church, it was Jewish completely in, in every, almost every way. Until the emperor Vespasian dispatched the Roman general Titus to destroy Israel in A.D. 70. And, and the best we can surmise is because of Jesus' words in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24, many of the, the Christians, the Jewish Christians, fled the city, and many of the Jews remained behind to fight the arm of Rome, and they were destroyed. And because of that decisive moment, Judaism and the Jews rejected all Jewish Christians completely. And what you have at about AD 70 is a decisive switch that now the church, and by the time we get to the writing of Revelation, which is 85, early 90s, the church is more Gentile, the Christians are more Gentile than Jewish. 
And so, so you had this misunderstanding, however, within the Roman government that Christianity was, was Jewish. And so the idea is that here in Smyrna, no, they were saying, no, this large Jewish population was saying, no, these are not Jews. They shouldn't be allowed the protections that we have. And so the Roman Empire began to realize, wait a minute, these groups that we've been calling Christians, they're, they're not Jewish at all. And so that means we're not going to extend to them the same protections, and that also means if they're not, they're, they're, they're not Jewish, they don't worship that God, and they don't worship any of our gods, well, then they're atheists. Now, what a, what a switch in society, because if you were an atheist back then, that was bad news for the good of society. And so you got persecuted if you didn't believe in the gods. Why? Because the gods made everything run. Did you know that the early Christians were persecuted because they were thought to be atheists? Well, we were because we rejected the pantheon of gods. We rejected all gods except the one true God. And the Jews said, no, 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 they're not even worshiping that same God. And so the Roman Empire began to switch their policies and realize Christians need to give allegiance to Caesar through worship, and yet the Christians would not. Furthermore, as rumors about Christianity began to spread, not only were they atheists, but there was belief that these Christians actually drank the blood and ate the flesh of another Christian named Christ. And they could prove this because Jesus himself taught it in John chapter 6, verse 51 to 59. And so not only were the Christians atheists, they were cannibals. Yeah, I'm not making this up. This is the historical record. Now, you're probably wondering, what's John 6, 51, 59? I see the eye, the gears turning. That's when Jesus is talking about He's the, heaven, the bread from heaven, right? That's when Jesus is talking about He's the living water, and His blood and flesh was given for our life. We know that is the basis of communion, but they had no category for that. And since it was taught by Jesus Himself, that's proof that they were cannibals. And so you had a growing group of atheist cannibals, and the Jews were outing them out, and persecution came. On charges of being an atheist and a cannibal, the church of Smyrna was under great tribulation, imprisoned, and executed. You think you're misunderstood? As a matter of fact, in this uh, John's own disciple who, who recorded these words, his own disciple Polycarp became the leader of the church in Smyrna. He was martyred. We have the historical documents from the second century AD of John's disciple Polycarp being burned to death. This is some of the transcript. I've kind of made it short so you get the point. They gathered him close to the, the, um, where the crown of Smyrna would be, and the proconsul of the city, the leading governing official, said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, change your mind, take the oath, and I shall release you. Curse Christ, worship Caesar. To which Polycarp replied, Eighty-six years I have served my king, and he never did me wrong. How can I slander him now who saved me? Council replied, I shall have you consumed with fire unless you change your mind. Polycarp responded, The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. For you do not know the fire of the coming judgment and everlasting punishment that is laid up for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. I love this feisty old man, right? 86 years old saying this to the, to the leaders of Smyrna. The document continues that the entire crowd of Gentiles and Jews who lived in Smyrna shouted with uncontrollable anger and a great cry, this one is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of our gods, 
who teaches many not to sacrifice nor to worship. And Polycarp was promptly put on a pyre and burned and then run through with a sword for good measure. Granted, none of us will face this kind of physical persecution in our lifetime or here. If you are a Christian, you will have to take stands that your surrounding culture just will not understand, nor will they accept, nor will they even like. That's the reality. You're narrow-minded, they'll say. Just compromise. Why don't you just compromise, they'll ask. It's just a pinch of incense, a little genuflect to Caesar, no harm, no foul. What's the big deal? Now, obviously, that's not the kind of thing we'll be told these days. The form's different, but the pressure's the same, isn't it? It's just a pronoun, for goodness sakes. It's just their personal preference. What's the big deal? This is the situation of Smyrna, economic disparity, being completely misunderstood by the society, persecution, and prison. And you have to ask, is Jesus worth this? That was the struggle in Smyrna. So finally, let's look at the Savior in Smyrna. Look at verse 10. We're still in verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And so, yes, so what's going on is the Jews were bringing slander against them, but since only the Romans had the authority to put them into prison, so they're outing the Christians to the Roman authorities, and the Roman authorities are putting them into prison. That you may be tested, Jesus says, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. Ten days under tribulation. Ten days, I, I'll be honest, I, there's no real significance that I could find. Genesis 24, 55, Daniel 1, 12 to 14 talks about 10 days, but has nothing to do with Revelation 20. We suspect 10 days just means it's, it's not a long time. It's an it's a, it's a endurable time. It's not a very short time, but it's, it's going to be a while. But it's going to be a short while. It's going to be some tribulation that's going to be heading towards them. You will be tested, Jesus says. What's interesting, and I love, let me make this point. We know historically it was the Jews and the Romans who made the Jews slandered the Christians, the Romans had the authority to put them into prison here. But notice how Jesus is pulling back the curtain of reality. Do you notice that? He pulls back the curtain of reality because he doesn't say it's the Romans, does he? He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. What they're going to suffer is imprisonment. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Behind the state persecution, behind the persecution of the government, behind the persecution of society, Jesus says, this is what's really what's going on. It's the devil. It's Satan. Now, now, okay, if you're a Democrat, I'm not saying the devil's in the… Wait, no, no, we got a Democrat. Okay, if you're a Republican, I'm not saying the devil's in the government, okay? Right? That's not what I'm saying, right? Um, and, and before, if you were a Democrat, you'd think the devil was in the government. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible is saying, right? We want to kind of, don't want to go off into craziness, but we also don't want to be naive, Jesus is saying, hey, listen, behind the persecution that comes, whether it's the state, whether it's Rome, whether it's uh, communism, whether it's Maoism, whether it's the society's new sexual ethic, whatever it might be, whether it's the state or society behind them, they're just mere actors. There's somebody else pulling the strings. It's the devil, he says. Don't be confused on that. But he says to them, um, basically endure, doesn't he? Behold, he's going to throw you in, into prison. You'll be tested for 10 days. Have a trip. Be faithful unto death. What's that look like? Keep your finger in Revelation. Uh, go to the book of Ephesians. 
Go to the book of Ephesians. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 920. It says, be faithful unto death. What are we supposed to do? And, and I love how Paul, he kind of pulls back the curtain for us as well. In Ephesians chapter 6, look at verse 12. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, thinking of what we just read in Revelation 2, Paul writes this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, was Paul completely ignorant of Rome's persecution? No, Paul himself experienced Rome's persecution. He's making the same point that's being made by Jesus here in Revelation 2. Yeah, it might be Rome throwing you into prison. It might be the Jews that are slandering you, but don't confuse yourself. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. The things we wrestle with are behind the screen that we often don't see here. And so how are we faithful unto death? Verse 13, therefore, Paul says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand firm. How do we stand, Paul? Stand, therefore, having fully fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Um, I can't unpack this thing, it's a rich text, but basically, truth and integrity in the way you live, righteousness was not so much a, a kind of moral attribute so much as it was an action, things you actually did. So gird your life with truth and good works, verse 15, and as for your shoes, the feet, having put on the, the, the readiness given by the gospel of grace, be firmly planted. If you know the Roman centurion armor, they had kind of like a cleat system on their shoes so that you could stand your ground and come against whatever came against you, you wouldn't budge. Be rooted in the gospel, Paul's talking about here, having the readiness of the gospel of peace in all circumstances, taking up a shield of faith, which which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. How are we faithful to the end? Ephesians 6 tells us we put on the armor of God and we stand our ground. Endurance over the long haul is how the church has always been victorious. We saw that in Esther. We might be tempted to that in our day and age, to meet power with power, but that is not what the Scriptures are teaching us. We don't meet power with power. We meet power with endurance. We meet power with humility. The greatest social revolutionaries of our time, Martin Luther King Jr., Booker T. Washington, they all knew it. You meet power with power, we don't change anything. We just shuffle the deck. You meet power with humility. You meet power with forgiveness. You meet power with endurance. And that's the gospel. And Jesus says, so be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. They would have been very aware of what, Paul, what Jesus was hinting at there because they had the crown of Smyrna that they could see in their city. They knew that spoke of glory and prestige and honor. And, and Jesus here, he's not talking about the royal crown, the diadema, which the kings would wear. Jesus is talking about the victor's crown, the athlete's crown, the, the gladiator's crown, the Stephanos, the crown of the victor, the crown of the one who overcomes, who endures, who conquers, who competes, who wins, who sacrifices, who sheds blood. That's the crown, Jesus says, you'll get the one who's willing to sacrifice. Friends, I... I I wish I could say it gets easier or that the church of Smyrna was an anomaly, but it doesn't and it isn't. Paul wrote to his young disciple, Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
It's not may. The grammar is very clear. Paul says through the inspiration of the Spirit, you want to live like Jesus, you will be persecuted. Why? Because Jesus answered it in John 15, 20. He says, look, the world hated me. It's going to hate you. That's not hard to figure this out. And so going back to kind of what we talked about last week, maybe that's why we're afraid to go out into the world. No, that's the reason we go into the world. Because the world needs the church, even if it doesn't want the church. It's kind of like when you were a child. You didn't want to drink the cough medicine, but your parents knew you needed to, and they made you drink it. Although cough medicine tastes really good these days. That's not too much of a problem, right? Um, I had a good friend who was a producer at uh, Blizzard up the street here, and he made headlines all through the internet, caused a huge internet, internet huge com- uh, controversy. He had thanked Jesus Christ on the, you know, if you buy these games, they have like a credit panel, all the producers can talk about all the people they want to thank, and your wife, family, kids, or whatever. Or my friend thanked Jesus Christ for changing him and saving him and giving him eternal life all over the internet back in 2012. I think it was 2012. It was the, it was the game expansion, The Wrath of the Lich King. I don't know. I don't, anybody play World of Warcraft? <laughs> no one's going to raise their hand, right? But it was this big game that was all over the internet. Jesus plays World of Warcraft. What's going on? Like, Jesus plays WoW. And my friend was, even though he had gotten permission from the executive producer, the producer said, you can thank anyone you want. In that producer's mind, he had no idea that that meant Jesus Christ on his game. And my friend was similarly and promptly fired. You might think, well, you, you, you got to keep your faith personal, and that's not the, the, the environment to talk about Jesus. Well, my friend said it was worth it, and he paid the price, and he says it's still worth it. History tells us the church of Smyrna continued to think Jesus is worth it. We know from the historical documents from the second century, along with Polycarp, at least 11 other Christians from the church of Smyrna were executed roughly about the same time, 156, 157 A.D., in fact, in 52 countries today, Christians face the same kinds of tribulation, poverty, slander, persecution, and death. And they say He's worth it every day by their life and by their death. Friends, when you're tempted to think, man, serving Christ, this is not worth it anymore. This is just too hard. I want to encourage you to visit one of these two websites, persecution.com. It's the website of Voice of the Martyrs and opendoorsusa.org. It's the website for Open Doors. It's an organization that I worked with in my youth when I thought maybe that's what I was going to do with my life, work with the persecuted church. Spend a few minutes on one of those websites and you will be encouraged, you will be challenged, you will be inspired that Jesus Christ is worth it. Now, the numbers are a bit fuzzy because many of these countries don't keep very accurate records and they have a habit of losing their prisoners. But according to the research from these two organizations and a few more, the majority of martyrs that the church has ever known has taken place since the dawn of the 20th century. In other words, more Christian men, women, and children have given their life for the gospel since the dawn of the 20th century than the prior 20 centuries combined. And that's saying a lot because from centuries one through three, it was tough sledding to be a Christian. That's great tribulation, friends. That's great tribulation. Well, we have to wrap up. Friends, if we really believe something is worth it, it is really amazing the, 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 the extent that we will go, isn't it? We'll wake up at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. We'll push ourselves. We'll deny ourselves. We'll do whatever it takes to hit the goal. 
We'll focus like a laser beam. We'll practice. We'll train. We'll sacrifice. We'll memorize. We'll prioritize. We'll do whatever it takes. Why? Because it's worth it. Because it's worth it. So the question I want to conclude with is, how could the church of Smyrna, how could Christians throughout history and even today consider Jesus' worth it even to the point of death? More importantly, how do I get there? How do you get there? I think verse 8 helps us figure that out. Let me get us back to it. Notice verse 8, as I told you, every letter to every church starts with Jesus talking about a characteristic we find in chapter 1, and He says of Himself, these are the words of the first and the last. In other words, He's got it all and everything in between. You might be struggling with material poverty, but I have it all. Jesus is sufficient. He's, friend, he's more than sufficient. Jesus is satisfaction. He's the living water. He is the heavenly bread. He's the one that quenches your thirst. He's the one that stills the hunger like nothing else. Jesus says, I'm the first. I'm the last. Don't worry about your poverty. I have it all. And then he also says, verse 8, the one who died and came to life. Friends, even if faithfulness means the ultimate sacrifice. It's not like death is something he can't handle. Oh, yeah, he did. (laughs) And he says to them, look, even if this is what it means, I've already taken care of it. Jesus could call these struggling, the small church in Smyrna, Jesus could call faithfulness from all Christians of all times and all places, including you and I, to this kind of faithfulness because, friends, He already experienced poverty. We looked at that. He Himself was slandered, and He, in fact, was put to death, and He did this all so that you would never know the true destitution that that rich young ruler had. He thought he had riches. He didn't realize how poor he actually was. You will never have an accusation stick against you when you stand before the throne of judgment, and you will never taste death. See, that's what the last line of this section is, isn't it? The one who conquers, overcomes, will not be hurt by the second death. So Jesus is saying, yeah, be faithful. I've been there. I've done that. You can too. I'll empower you. I'll enable you. So we have to add… What is, friends, eternal glory, honor, prestige, and joy, and life worth? Man, anything it takes, right? And the good news of the gospel, the good news we read in Revelation is that in Christ, He's already given us everything we need. Let's pray. Father, we come before You, and Lord, we just thank You that there's a church of Smyrna that's a constant reminder to us. We, we live in the same kind of place. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's the kind of place you want to be. But under that veneer, we're going to have to make compromises if we're going to truly fit in. We're going to have to pay a price that's not worth it if we want to be just like everyone else and get along. Help the, Smyrna, help the Christians of Smyrna, help this church of Smyrna be an example for us that that price is not worth it. That, Christ, you are worth tribulation, losing out maybe materially because we we have a different value system. You're worth being slandered for. You know what it's like to be slandered. You're worth that. You're even worth the ultimate sacrifice. 
and you remind us that you're the one that paid it, and you're the one that conquered it. You are the one who died and rose again forevermore. We have it all in you. We thank you. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.